0: Any conversation about sex is going to be best if the option of not having sex, or at least not having sex yet, is actually a real option on the table. If you're in a situation where it feels like we both don't have an option but to have sex right now and therefore any conversation that doesn't result in us being able to have sex is going to be a bad conversation, someone's going to storm out of the room, someone's going to whine, someone's going to guilt trip the other person, not a good situation. Just remember, it's entirely possible to have an amazing date, an amazing couple of dates, or an amazing entire relationship that doesn't ever involve particular types of sex or sex at all. Just keep that option open because it makes the other options even better if you do decide on them. And again, we have to realize that there's not a direct right or wrong answer here sometimes. It all comes down to each individual's risk tolerance risk is something that we do every single day. Every time you get in a car, every time you take a drink, every time you take drugs, smoke, walk down the street at night, go to a public gathering, do basically anything, there's some kind of risk involved. That includes sex.
1: On this episode of the Multiamory Podcast, we're going on to part two of our two-part series on sexual health. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, 351, please go check that out first before listening to this one because we're going to be building upon what we covered last time. In that first episode, we covered information about some terminology, talking about a lot of the common STIs and STDs, and how we can have better, more informed conversations that help reduce stigma and keep us and others healthy, both physically and mentally. And in part two, today, we're exploring a more personal connection to sexual wellness, discussing the options available for practicing safer sex, which is much more than just condoms or abstinence. And we will also look at real-life examples of how to have more effective sex talks with your partners and some tips for making those conversations a little easier.
0: So we have to give the same disclaimer that we gave in our previous episode, which is the three of us are not doctors yet (laughs) (laughs) until one of us gets some kind of wild scholarship to go to med school. But uh, (laughs) the information in these episodes is compiled from many different medical sources. We have worked to put together the most relevant and important information, but we didn't do original research on this. We're not qualified to give official medical advice. Also, our resources about testing availability and drug approval or test approval, it's based on the U.S., may be different in your country. Use this episode as a starting point, but always ask your doctor, do your own research before making any major decisions about your health.
1: Yeah, so quick recap of last time. Like I mentioned in the intro, we spent some time talking about some terminology, things like why we say safer sex instead of safe sex. Talked about avoiding stigmatizing terms like clean to refer to not having a particular STI. And then we also went through and looked at the details how different STIs are transmitted, how dangerous different ones are, what the treatments are, which ones are curable or treatable, all that sort of stuff. So, again, please go back, check that episode out, because something that we really want to come across from these two episodes is we want all of you to be able to listen to this and come away with lower anxiety than you came in. This is a topic that for a lot of people raises anxiety immediately. You even like say some of the keywords and people kind of go a little, you know, they get get anxious. I, I know I certainly do, but something we've really been trying to do with these episodes is just be matter-of-fact about it. In the same way that we're matter of fact when we talk about catching the flu or a cold or having eczema or lice or, right? Like any number of other things that are not so stigmatized and don't cause as much anxiety, even though they are things that we would like to avoid and try to have as little of as possible, uh, that it's, it's not something that causes the same amount of anxiety. So that's really what, what we want to, what we want you to internalize today and in last week's episode with all of this.
2: So we want to start out by talking about safer sex practices, and I think when many people think about trying to make their sex safer, the low-hanging fruit is a condom or a barrier. There's a lot of barriers, so let's talk about those barriers. Putting barriers on your low-hanging fruit. Yes. Oh, that was good. That was good. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so barriers help prevent STIs by stopping bodily fluids from entering the other person's body. So here's some common types. The first one is condoms. We all know what condoms are. You probably have put one on a banana or other things maybe in your life. I
0: never got the banana experience. Uh, I
2: never did I mean, first I started
0: out by going to private Christian school. So, of course, no bananas allowed. Yeah, no. For sure. But then I went to public high school. And even in my public high school, no bananas allowed. Mm. Didn't know. I think free I got condoms. a banana once. Yeah,
2: I don't know about free condoms. That's that's pushing it a bit far. But yeah, not
0: till college. Free condoms. Yeah, at college, college. But please
2: yeah. give them all away. But yeah, all
0: the bananas <laughs> you can eat
2: in college. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So something to think about with condoms is that you need to be careful to select condoms that are approved by the FDA to prevent both pregnancy and STIs. Because there are some kind of novelty-flavored or glow-in-the-dark condoms out there that are not necessarily FDA-approved for both of those things. And there are internal and external versions of condoms. There is only one FDA-approved internal condom in the U.S., which is the FC2 internal condom. And internal condoms are more expensive, but they have the advantage of being able to be inserted into the vagina or anus up to eight hours before sex. I think of, like, those things for when you're on your period. Is oh, that like
0: the flexi? A, like, yeah, the flex is one of them. Like a disc. A menstrual disc, I think, is the generic term. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Yeah, so, they're not, they're not they're just meant for menstruation, not for... not for. Yeah, them, yeah these today. are not the same. It reminds <laughs> me <laughs> of that. Not the same. Yeah, kind of like that.
1: Right. So that's, it is an interesting thing that, you know, the people will also refer to them sometimes as like male condoms and female condoms. Although again, that terminology is Is just incorrect because they're not specific to a gender. They're specific to, are they put on externally or internally? (laughs) So that's the the official names of them. And I do think that point that you can insert it up to eight hours beforehand is really interesting. So if you are someone who, you know, has that thing of like, I hate having to like ruin the flow or whatever to put on a condom. Hey, maybe this is worth giving a try. There you go.
2: Also, there are latex and latex-free condoms available. A lot of people out there might have a latex allergy, so that's something to be aware of and look for. And then sadly for me, <laughs> but I know that other people out there who can't do any type of latexy or like plasticy condoms also, there are lambskin condoms out there, but we do not recommend them, A, because they're not vegan, and B, <laughs> because they don't prevent STIs. They do prevent pregnancy, but there's latex-free condoms out there, so use that if you can't do latex. Don't use this like porous,
1: weird thing that
2: lambskin
1: yeah. is. Yeah, there's or, really no reason to no. use lambskin. I yeah,
0: mean, they're good don't. enough for the Elizabethans, but we've evolved past we, them.
2: Yes, we
1: certainly right. have. <laughs> Right. And and just so you realize this in case you didn't, condoms can be pre-lubricated or not. One thing to keep in mind with condoms is that both water-based lubes and silicone lubes are totally fine to use with condoms, but do not use any oil-based lubricant. And that includes things like baby oil or coconut oil, which I know is a pretty common thing for people to use. Don't use it with condoms because it degrades it. It will make it Fall apart essentially, so don't do that. One other thing to be on the lookout with condoms is that there are some that are still made with spermicidal lube, and you can also buy like spermicidal lube, lube with like a chemical in it that kills sperm. Generally, though, don't use that. Spermicide has been shown in a lot of research to be irritating to the skin, specifically the skin in the vagina, and it can then make someone more susceptible to STIs or just like infections and you know UTIs and stuff like that because it's irritating. So generally speaking like the condom is going to do the job. Don't add the spermicide cuz on top of that the amount of spermicide that's in those uh condoms that are lubricated with spermicide is not even enough to do anything. Hmm. So just just don't do it. Just it's a marketing ploy says. right yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. That's all exactly. that is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And just one last thing about condoms. We'll get into this a little bit later, but some of the biggest resistance that I've seen from people wanting to use barriers is just not liking the barriers, not not feeling like sex is... I mean, it opens up a whole can of worms. It can be everything from it's harder for me to perform sexually, or it's harder for me to have an orgasm, and I'm saying this regardless of what genitalia you may have, to all the way up to using a condom makes the relationship feel less special or makes it feel like there's less trust, we could do whole episodes diving into the psychology of that. But that's the biggest reason that I see for people pushing back against using condoms. So if you're someone who just really doesn't like condoms or really struggles with condoms, and if you're someone who you know wears a condom externally, there are companies out there that make custom-sized, custom-made condoms that's for awesome. you specifically because... I've never been a person with a penis or who wears a condom externally. But what I have gleaned from my um, nearby penis havers is that (laughs) finding the right fit is key for a condom to still create an enjoyable sexual experience. And so we encourage people to go experiment, try out many, many different brands, many, many different sizes. And if you're still having a hard time, there are companies that make custom-made condoms. So specifically dot myonecondoms.com, that's just one of them that's come up a lot, where they literally have like 60 different sizes based on a combination of length and girth and fit and all those things.
2: I thought that maybe they would like send you, you know, when you have to get a retainer fitted. I mean, I've done this recently, <laughs> right. but you have to stick your teeth in the thing in, and in the, the like, mold yeah uh-huh. an impression exactly i thought that perhaps they would send now, you something that, along those lines yeah if that company if that does the clip the
0: clone a willy stuff where you can make like a a molded <laughs> oh, dildo yeah. if they would just do a cross promotion where they'll also mm. make you some custom-fitted condoms i that's feel like that's a billion dollar idea
2: somebody yeah. get them on the phone right now yeah maybe Seriously. we need to be the ones
1: to make <laughs> that happen very cool <laughs> Uh yeah. But but also besides getting custom made ones, like Dedeker said, if you go to an actual sex shop, a lot of times they'll have all the bins of condoms that you can mix and match and like build a set. So that's what I did is I just went and literally like one or one or two of every single kind and just did science, right? And it was fun <laughs> science. So win-win. <laughs> all right. The next type of barrier we want to talk about are dental dams. So for those of you who don't know, I feel like most of you are familiar with what this is. It's basically just a flat sheet of latex or polyurethane, if it's latex-free, that is placed over the genitals or over the anus, generally for oral sex, right? So it's for covering something that's not shaped so a condom can fit over it. Let's put it that way. Uh, you can buy these online. They're a little bit more expensive than buying condoms because they're kind of a specialty item, I guess. However, having some on hand could be useful. But if you don't, the other way is that you can just take a condom and you cut off the tip and you cut off the ring part on the other end and do a slit all the way down the middle and then it just folds out into a flat sheet. You can use it that way. The it's kind of, small
2: of though, right? I don't know. Maybe it's not.
1: I mean, I now I, I want, to want to go
2: You to do some science? <laughs> exactly. You can do the
0: same with a with a latex glove as well. Oh, okay. or, yeah. or a glove and, made out of you know, if you're allergic to latex again, like a non-latex glove or whatever, you can do the same same kind of custom job. Nice,
1: right? Yeah. Um, but one of the advantages to buying the pre-made ones, which you can order online, um, is that they're packaged up. So that you don't have to like, okay, hang on, stop. Let's get do a little and Crafts project here right <laughs> in the middle of things. Because you don't want to do that in advance and just have it kind of like sitting out. That's not really sanitary either. So actually having some on hand is a really useful thing.
0: Speaking of gloves, gloves are also a good thing to have on hand. So generally speaking, you can't necessarily get STIs through your hands unless you have some kind of abrasion or skin irritation or an open wound. Uh, If you do, you know, if you have a cut, a hangnail, a fresh tattoo, or dermatitis, or some other skin irritation, it's really good to cover that up. If you're in a situation where you're touching multiple people's genitals, uh, either with your hands or with gloves on, and then touch your eyes or your mouth, then you're kind of negating the protection that they offer. So I've seen this recently also, I think, with COVID, when especially a lot of people were going out in public with rubber gloves to help protect themselves. But when you're still just like using the glove and like touching everything else on your body, you're doing the same exact thing. You know, the gloves aren't really protecting you that much. Generally, gloves are recommended for any kind of sex that may involve contact with blood, such as sex during a menstrual period, any kind of fisting, or if you're specifically getting into any kind of kink that involves blood. That's also really important to use gloves. And it can also be a fun kind of, you know, doctory role play as well. Ooh. And it offers a different <laughs> texture. Snap. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can really, really have some fun with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a last note about barriers in general, whether we're talking about gloves or dental dams or condoms, the whole point is about keeping se- fluids separate, right? You know, they're keeping these fluids on separate sides of the barrier. And so that's why we never want to reuse a barrier or using the same barrier with two different partners, I would think that this would be apparent, but I've definitely been in group sex situations where people did not realize that, thought that, okay, I have a condom on so I can just use it with multiple partners and then that's fine. No. It is no. not fine. You know, and same, same thing if you're using, using barriers on a sex toy, for instance, you know, that if you're going to use that sex toy with multiple people, then you want to use a different condom for each
2: time. So let's continue talking about safer sex practices and move over to the medical side of things. So we talked about this a bit last time, but just to reiterate, you can get the HPV vaccine. You can learn more about that from our previous episode, but we have an update on this from when we talked about it last time, that there is now no age limit for the HPV vaccine. So you can talk to your doctor about it. I believe even we've had some patrons talk about this, that they discussed it with their doctor, that they had multiple partners. And therefore, we were able to get the HPV vaccine, maybe even free of charge. I don't know. I had to pay a bunch of money for it when I got mine because back then, when I was 24 or 26 or something, they were like, uh, you're too old. So, whatever.
0: It kind of depends on where you're at and the exactly. medical system of where your locality. So, look into That's that. That's true.
2: Yeah. And this is something as well. Get the vaccine even if you have HPV. This is exactly why I got the vaccine is because I did have HPV <laughs> at the time. And they're like, well, let's not have that happen again. And so I got the vaccine and it does protect against around nine strains of HPV. And it's very unlikely that you have more than one or two strains. And it also helps prevent reinfection and it can decrease outbreaks All of those things are a huge major factor in why you might want to get it.
1: Yeah. Just a note about the HPV vaccine is that there is technically no age limit to how old you can be to get it, but they do say that there's this age limit of, you know, whatever it is, 26 or something, and then this other age limit of 45. But we've talked to people who've gotten it in their 50s as well. So, like, there isn't actually a limit, but. It can be more difficult to convince your doctor to give it to you the older you get. Or maybe even your doctor will give it, but the pharmacy will kind of resist it. But give it a try though. See if you can, you know, do some research on your own, talk to your doctor about it. Because I mean, hey, if you're having sex, this is a really useful thing and, a, yeah. and an easy thing, relatively speaking, right?
2: Yeah. Mine I believe was three doses of the vaccine. Do you remember Duneker?
0: I think mine was two doses. Okay. I think it's two.
1: Yeah.
2: It's yeah. two? Okay, maybe it was just two. Yeah, but I know it was more than once. Um, The other thing to discuss on the medical side are the HIV prophylaxis, and we discussed this more last time, but it's PEP and PrEP. PrEP stands for pre-exposure, and it's taken daily to decrease the risk of developing an HIV infection if you are exposed. And then PEP is taken within 72 hours after you are potentially exposed, So talk to your doctor about these things. If you are potentially in a high-risk category, want to help yourself out in that way, go talk to your doctor.
1: Yeah. All right. So some other little pieces of information about this. One is about sex toys. We've talked about those just briefly. You know, Dedeker mentioned using condoms on them and changing those if they're being used for multiple people. So a few things to think about. One is, First of all, washing your toys after you use them, regardless of what kind of toy it is, washing it. And also, if it's been sitting for a while, wash it before using it again. Thank you There for are a other things. <laughs> I will go to that after
0: this. Assembly <laughs> shovels through should, the closet yes. full of dusty yeah. sex like, toys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And part of the reason for that is that there are other infections besides STIs that you can get from toys that aren't clean right just like other kinds of bacteria or fungus or viruses or, or any of those sorts of things uh, it's happened to me and it's a real bummer so just don't do it just you know and also with um porous toys like squishy silicone. soft silicone kind of toys like the soft ones not the hard ones but the soft ones uh generally you should only keep those like 6 months to a year and then you got to really? toss them out why yeah cuz it just sort of degrades just over time gotta. and can harbor bacteria and stuff like that so
2: I gotta say, even like the Hitachi Magic Wand degrades over a number of oh, years of like yeah. regular use. You got you can, I mean, you can
0: replace the the spongy bit on it. Yeah, though. that's yeah. true.
2: Yeah, yeah. If even the robust ones, you gotta you gotta really replace them. Just <laughs> you should. <Yeah. laughs>
1: on that note. Uh, An important distinction to make with sex toys is ones that are porous and ones that are non-porous. So what that means is something non-porous would be a material like glass or metal. Um, Those, as long as you're actually washing them and sanitizing them, you can use that same toy without a barrier on it with multiple people because it's not porous, right? It's not going to absorb anything from that person. So just like... Uh, you know a doctor sterilizes their scalpel that's metal the same principle can apply with your sex toys right but if it's anything that's porous that's like a a, at all of a soft or spongy kind of thing that one should never be used with more than one person uh, unless you're putting a condom or some kind of barrier over it so just something to keep in mind
0: yeah and let's talk about lube which Ooh, we do talk about favorite. a lot when we're talking about our sponsorship for this show. But this is this is gonna be a non-sponsored segment right here. A neutral, an allegedly neutral segment about lube. <laughs>
2: we still have a favorite <laughs> lube, but yeah.
0: We do. That's not a secret, but for the purposes of this, we're gonna we're gonna enter some neutral territory here. So again, lube is not just about making sex feel better. It really is a part of safer sex because of the fact that when you have more friction that causes irritation and that can increase the risk of STI transmission or so,
2: UTIs. Ugh. Oh,
0: UTIs also. Yeah, don't even get me started. So uh-huh. again, make sure it's a high quality lube. Again, avoid spermicidal lubricants. If you're prone to infections like vaginitis, bacterial infections, yeast infections, avoid any kind of lube that has that like warming, numbing flavored. There's numbing, kind of, like, lubes? gimmicky lube. Yeah, there, yes. you want a numbing lube for it's, people. It's marketed. It is usually marketed to men who think that like they have an orgasm too quickly, Got it, and got therefore it. Okay. the numbing is meant to slow down your role,
2: allegedly. Mm-hmm. Allegedly, I, <laughs> an alleged slowing. I, of I got
1: a variety pack of condoms once, and and one of the varieties in it was a numbing kind. Did you try and it? And I tried it, and just. Instantly, couldn't feel anything. Well, down there. Really? <laughs> Holy shit! shit. Yeah, Too really. much Abort, Abort. Yeah, this isn't gonna happen.
0: <laughs> Personally, wow. uh, I I hate gimmicky lube. Every single yeah. time I've tried a gimmicky lube, I'm just like, uh, this is not good. So I really, especially for the it. warming stuff. I'm just like, uh, but that's my personal preference. Uh, I tend to avoid that stuff. If you're someone who's prone to having allergic reactions, then consider using a silicone-based lube rather than a water-based lube. Again, if you're using silicone-based lube, be careful with your silicone toys. Sometimes those can interact badly with silicone lube. Not always. Um, whenever I'm using a silicone lube and I have a silicone toy, especially if it's a high-quality silicone toy, then I will try to do a spot test. Usually on like the base of the toy, like some part that's not necessarily going to be used or like inserted into my body just to see how it interacts with the silicone lube. I haven't had any toys like melt on me. Usually, my experience with using both a high quality silicone lube and a high quality silicone toy is usually the worst thing that happens is sometimes the silicone lube can leave like a film that's hard to clean off. So, that's been my experience.
2: Fascinating. Wow. All right. (laughs) I'm just sorry. I'm just thinking about melting toys from Lube. Let's have you have you ever
0: had that? I, I've had that no. happen using like putting cheap silicone toys together in a bag, and where they touched wow. each other and really and, and melted. Yes,
2: yeah. Oh, no, you. But, like, I mean, it was, they were
0: both cheap, nice silicone toys. They're probably not good to put in my body anyway. So right, yeah, yeah. yeah. A good, lot of the
2: nicer, right uh-huh. yeah, the nicer ones like come with their own individual bags, which I really like. Yeah, yes. Yes, so you don't have Recommend to it. Throw them all together. All right, let's talk about activity choices, shall we? So, if you have ever been in a sex ed class, probably you have heard the refrain that abstinence is the only way to prevent pregnancy and STIs and blah, 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 blah. And yes, it is very effective, but even that isn't 100% perfect since some STIs can be transmitted through things like sharing food, drinks, towels, other non sexual contact. So, testing
1: is still worthwhile. It still is an this, important This thing. happened to me, actually. Really? I, I got an STI at one point. It was, you know, a, a curable one, but I got mm-hmm. it during a time when I wasn't having any sex. And, You're like, like, like well outside of a range of exposure. It was just... The doctor wow. was like, yeah, it can happen... It was when I was in college. So, like, it can happen at the gym or you know different things it's just like a, a contagion that it can as long as it touches your skin you can get an infection yeah so stuff like that happens so i guess abstinence is not 100 percent perfect even in that case
0: you can also pick up something like hsv through birth through someone giving birth to yep. you
1: yeah or yeah. through
0: you know someone has a cold sore and they still kiss the baby
2: yeah you know mm-hmm. like
0: that can happen too even if you're totally abstinent
2: totally so, while lifelong monogamy between two people is theoretically a safer choice, there is a 2015 study that is called Reexamining the Effectiveness of Monogamy as an STI Preventative Strategy. It shows that monogamy as it is actually practiced in real life is not effective at preventing STIs. In fact, they suggest that people who practice serial monogamy are significantly less likely to get tested and practice safer sex than people who are ethically non-monogamous. I think most of the non monogamous folk out there know this to be true. <laughs> yeah.
0: Anecdotally, I know from my own personal experience in my serial monogamy days, very little testing. Yeah. Very little mm-hmm. discussion of sex about. And sexual history. Yeah. It was kind of, we're all floating along the same assumption that everyone's fine. Everyone's good. Everyone's nope. fine.
1: Nope. Right. Everyone's right. quote
0: unquote like a good person without STIs. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I I feel like it's really the the fault of trying to sell monogamy as some kind of safer way to have sex because mm-hmm. it's just like we don't do lifelong monogamy. Like I don't even know if I could think of a single person who's only ever had sex with one person their whole life. Even if they're a totally monogamous person who's been married for fifty years or whatever, like at some point they've had sex with someone else. I mean, right? they do, do exist. Really those
0: people. There. Do exist.
1: Yeah. It's just very, rare. Someone. very rare. Yeah, I can very very someone, rare. But yes. Yeah. So, um, another thing to think about in terms of safer sex choices is that it's not just about what barriers you're, you're using, what you're doing with your toys, things like that. It's also just what kinds of sexual activities are you doing? Which ones are you choosing to do with different partners or, or with anyone at all? So some things to think about with this is just that sex is Bigger than just a penis going in a vagina, which I think for a lot of people and we 've talked about this before on the show, you know there 's this thing that that is sex, and everything else is like some other kind of thing, but it 's all sex and it 's all great, and it 's all tons of fun, so also realizing kind of what your other options are is another really good way of practicing, safer for sex this <laughs> This actually came up on an episode of the magicians um, yes. in in season five where I don't think this is too much of a spoiler for those of you who are not caught up but uh one of the characters has lycanthropy he's a werewolf and in the show that's transmitted as an STI yeah. and <laughs> I forgot about that <laughs> and he's talking with this woman that he's in love with and is kind of lamenting the fact that they can't have sex can't have sex with anyone and she's like honey there are so many other ways to have sex and really PIV is not even in my top 10.
2: Wow. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's because she's awesome.
1: <laughs> she is awesome. King yeah. Largo is awesome. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Uh, so, so okay, some examples of this is kissing, right? Now, kissing can transmit HSV, CMV, possibly some others, but it's generally unlikely. Um, it's not, not a super common thing. Again, you know, be mindful of cold sores and things like that, but kissing is great. Manual sex, so mutual masturbation or using your hands on each other, is incredibly unlikely to transmit any STIs. Again, as long as you're washing your hands between doing that with different people or between touching yourself and the other person or switching out gloves or things like that. Uh, Using toys is also very unlikely to transmit any STIs as long as you're cleaning them, using condoms like we talked about before. Oral sex can transmit most STIs if done without a barrier, but at least with HIV has essentially zero risk or a very, very low risk of HIV with oral sex, but other things can be transmitted. Vaginal anal sex can transmit any of the STIs that we've talked about, including HIV. And with oral and vaginal anal sex, Really, with any of these barriers significantly reduce the risk even farther, right, because like Dedeker pointed out you 're keeping the fluids from each person on separate sides of the barrier that's the whole point,
0: yeah, and I want to drive home. There's something that Dan Savage said a long time ago, but he basically p- pointed out that queer people are very used to negotiating sexual activities together, you know how, how like how do we want to have a good experience together? What are you into? what are you not into? And straight people or people who have straight sex are less used to having that conversation because we're riding that wave of hundreds of years of assumptions about what sex is and assuming that it follows a particular script, it has to involve PIV, it has to involve this kind of orgasm at that kind of time. And I find myself, especially in my work with clients, often really encouraging people in the early stages of a relationship when they're figuring out SDI status and sexual health that you have so many options you know it doesn't have to follow like this the sex escalator i suppose if i was going <laughs> <know, Interesting. laughs> okay. to you know sex escalator the, the, the sex escalator is also a thing right <laughs> that we follow yeah. the same escalating steps to the same conclusion and there's no getting off that escalator there's no going backwards there's no choosing a different escalator there's no choosing to take the elevator or the stairs if you want and and really you can you can you know the if you if you're, if you're someone who has you know straight sex and you don't want to hop into PIV quite yet, or maybe you're in a situation where you're encountering a new SDI status and you're not even entirely sure, but you know that you do want to sexually engage with this person, like there's so many options to explore your sexual chemistry together consensually and reducing your risk at the same time. That doesn't involve, we have to do all these same steps that are expected of me. So I just, I just feel like that's important to, to drive home.
1: Awesome. So we're going to go on to talk about Now now that we have a sense of what some of these options are, how do we have this conversation? right? What are ways that we can make this conversation easier, less stressful, smoother, things like that? But before we go on to that, we're going to take a quick break to talk about some of our sponsors for this show. Please go check them out if you value this content. It helps us to keep this content coming to everyone out there. For free without putting some kind of paywall up in front of our podcast. So thank you all so much for your support.
3: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics in Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes
0: you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13.
3: Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
0: And we're back and we're jumping straight in with hot button topic, which is when do we talk about all these things? You know, it's I think it's one thing to be full of the knowledge and the wisdom and the intent to be a sexual superhero of wellness and health. (laughs) I wonder what that costume would look like. Oh, I have some ideas. Yeah. But... I think when the rubber hits the road, it can be a little challenging, even for myself. I think even for the three of us in real world situations, Mm. when it actually comes to, okay, now I actually need a conversation about this. I know I still get that little bit of that. Oh, Mm -hmm. gosh, is this the right time? Am I bringing this up in the right way? What if I get rejected? What if this is super awkward? Like I 100% still go through that. So general rule of thumb is to start having these conversations before any relevant sexual contact. And that timing is going to vary based on your STI status, your partner's STI status. For example, if you know that you regularly get cold sores, it might be a good thing to mention that before you kiss someone and make sure that you both understand what that means. Or if you have genital herpes, then mentioning that before any genital contact. Again, we really encourage people to give yourself the gift of talking about this earlier rather than waiting until the last minute. You know, don't wait until you're taking clothes off. Don't wait until sex is actually on the table and about to happen. I know in this is just my personal experience, but, and this is going to sound a little weird. Some of my best memories early on in my relationships or early on in dating relationships have been when people have been proactive about, hey, let's talk about sexual health long before we're actually on the road to having sex. Because for me, that makes me feel very safe and feel like, oh, this is maybe a trustworthy person that we're able to talk about these things openly. They're asking questions. I'm able to share honestly. I can ask them questions. And that goes for both relationships in my personal history that went on to be long-term relationships and relationships that didn't really go anywhere. But I don't know, for me, there's something about that of someone who is comfortable enough to bring that up when we're sitting at the sushi bar. I'm totes into it, you know, rather than just waiting and treating it like this very shameful thing. And I, I think that I know it can feel awkward and it can feel a little bit intimidating, but I just want to encourage people that being that proactive person who brings up that topic, I think is going to win you more points than lose you points in the end. And it's it can mm-hmm. be a great jumping off point, especially then to talk about even sexier things if you want, you know, that that starting with sexual health can also lead to just really, really good conversation as you're getting to know a new sexual partner or potentially sexual partner.
2: I will say maybe having a conversation super early, like, I don't know, like, between each other on your tinder messaging or something can you message on tinder i don't yeah, know yes, yes. yeah saying. you can yeah, that's, yes. the whole point. that's the whole point yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's a little early and that might be a little awkward or uh, forward unless,
1: unless the whole point of this connection is to meet to have sex that's true and then, then absolutely have that conversation over you know beforehand on there yeah right? yeah and I. it, I just, it just varies by situation
2: that's absolutely true I do think in general, it is better to have it as early and as sober and as clothed as you possibly can. And it is easy to make decisions that we later regret when, when you know, our brain chemicals are all going going haywire, getting super excited about a new experience with someone. And perhaps you might make decisions that you wish that you didn't when those brain chemicals have subsided. So it is a good idea to just talk about things beforehand and come prepared with whatever equipment you need. That's that's super key as well. And then also having the STI conversation over text is maybe a good option. That might be fair game. In fact, if your meetup is specifically to just hook up, like Jace just said, uh, then having that conversation ahead of time via text is not only okay, but it's actually advised. And that also might might make it a little bit less awkward. It's like, oh... We don't have to stare at each other in the face while we're saying these things. We're doing it over the phone. And, and then we're prepared beforehand as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, actually a lot of good reasons in favor of having that conversation over text because it gives both of you the opportunity to go look something up real quick if you're unfamiliar with with a term or, or you don't actually know some facts about that or some risks about that. It gives you time to share things where you're not having to like very carefully watch your reactions. Like if the other person or you react like, Oh gosh, you can kind of take a moment to absorb that, do a little bit of research and respond more appropriately. So I actually think I, since this was brought up in researching this, I actually think text conversations might be the preferred way to do it. I actually mm. think that's a great way to have mm. that conversation. Interesting. Yeah. i will be curious to hear what other people have to say about that in the episode discussion. Yeah. So next is how do we talk about sex? So we've talked about when to talk about it and basically just as early and sober and clothed as possible. It's going to be so much better, right? The good sex conversations that I've had have been earlier when we're having dinner or something like Dedeker mentioned. The ones that have been a little awkward are the ones right before we're about to do stuff. So just as early as possible is always going to be better, you know, while, while being appropriate. It's not like, hey, I bumped into you at the grocery store. Let's talk about sexual health. I mean, I guess unless you're going home to... You know, it's always possible.
2: It's always possible. <laughs> Anything is possible.
1: Yeah. Okay. So how to talk about sex, baby. Uh, So when talking about sex, there's basically two important parts to talking to a potential partner or a partner about having sex. The first part is disclosing your testing status and learning about theirs. Then the second part is actually deciding on the safer sex practices that you will use if you have sex together or when you have sex together. So we're going to talk about the first part of that first. So testing, status, and disclosure. So there's basically three pieces of information. And this is a little bit of a recap from last week. But basically... The information that's important is when you were tested, what you were tested for, and then what the results of those tests were. And again, to call back to last week, the point of that is not to say, I was tested and I'm negative. Because that's there is no definitive test that says you're negative for everything. That just doesn't exist. That's not possible to test. So it's what specifically were you tested for, when was it, and what were the results? That's the best way to, to share that and then to expect that from the other person. For actually doing that, though, how do we do this? So this comes from an article by Gabrielle Castle uh, called We Put Together Text Templates for That STI Convo. And they even... Made them as text templates, right? So again, really oh, encouraging using text. <laughs> uh, so they got some expert advice on some template phrases that you can use to start the STI conversation, whether that's in person or via text or whatever. So the basic one to start with, and they're all kind of based around this one thing, is just the super simple, my last STI screening was, insert date here, uh, and I am positive or negative, for these STIs, how about you? I know it sounds like maybe too simple, but simplicity it's is actually, good sometimes. That's yeah, actually kind of great, right? Especially yeah. if, especially if you have a sense that the other person like gets it, like they understand about sexual health, it, then it can be that simple. It doesn't need a lot of preamble. It's like, hey, so my last STI screening was a month ago, uh, and you know, I was tested for like the normal four but also had them do HSV 2 cuz I already know that I have HSV 1 just for HSV 2 it was negative and I was negative for for all those other ones for you know HIV chlamydia gonorrhea syphilis right could be something like that and then hey what about you when were you last tested can work great
2: all right so if you're positive for an STI here's an example of something that you can say and this is I I feel like I've had this conversation before. A doctor found that I carry the HPV virus during a routine gynecological exam, but HPV transmits through direct contact. So if we use a condom or other barrier methods during sexual intercourse, the risk of transmission is a lot lower. And I haven't had an infection for however many months or years, and I don't have an infection now. So that's something that you could say, for instance, with a new partner.
0: And I mean, and take that template and make it your own.
2: Yes, also, mm-hmm. or just have completely copy and paste. What I <laughs> yeah,
1: said. yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it's just a just a starting point to realize, like, yeah, this it can be pretty straightforward. Here's another example. I've been exposed to HSV in the past, uh, but I don't have any active lesions, so there's very little risk of transmission. To make sure it can't transmit between us, I take antiviral medication to prevent future outbreaks. And as long as we use a condom or a dental dam, the chance of you acquiring HSV is extremely unlikely. The virus hasn't been transmitted between me and any of my sexual partners in the past, but I wanted to share this information so that you're not misled.
0: Or it could be something like just so you know, I have herpes, I have HSV2. I know that you might need some time to think about that. So here are some resources that helped me when I got my diagnosis. It may be helpful to you too. Please feel free to ask me any questions that you have. Or if you have a treatable STI, something like gonorrhea or chlamydia, then we recommend sharing what medicine you're on, when you're planning on getting tested again, where you are in your treatment plan.
2: And then after sharing, give them space and offer resources, just like Dedeker said, Maybe give them some resources that include some advocacy and humanizing information about people with your particular STI status. And then, you know what, no matter what, do your best not to take their response personally, which I know is challenging. But at the end of the day, you know for yourself, like, I'm not a bad person because I have this. And we overall, as a society, need to reduce stigma around this in general. So if this person isn't quite where I am in that way, then well, hopefully someday they'll get there.
1: Yeah, I remember the first time that someone shared with me that they had HSV. And I didn't, I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't know a lot about it. And she gave me a little bit of an explanation. And she's like, you know, you can, you can look into it, you know, take your time, kind of figure out what that means for you. Here's some stuff that we could do today instead uh you know like here's some activities that are safer that we could do and then you know think about that and and learn about it and we can talk about it i wish she had actually given me some resources too maybe the next day or something sent me some of those but i will say in that case it took me a while to process all of that but like several months later i had learned a lot more after that so I guess what I'm trying to say here is that even if it's the other person maybe receives it well, but it's like, "Mm, I'm just not sure. It's possible that in the fullness of time, they will, they will have a better understanding about it and get educated, even if it doesn't happen right away when you want them to.
2: On the flip side of that, though, if the other person really isn't willing to talk about it matter of factly or gets super defensive or tries to tell you, like, I don't know, some, shit about energy healing practices or something regarding this STI just don't have sex with this person it's not worth it don't do it there's no reason and if they don't believe in germs or they're unwilling to educate themselves then yeah they're they're not a safe person to entrust your health with really also if the other person is uncomfortable and admits to not having been tested or is scared by all of this just be cautious and decide how much you're willing to guide them because that's a lot of emotional labor as well. And perhaps that's not something that you need to do. You don't need to be there. We, we always say like polyprentice, like mm. safer sex prentice or HSV prentice or whatever. Things that you could do in this situation, you could offer to send them some resources, like these episodes, for example, or there's a lot of resources out there discussing really what it is that it's like living with an STI like HSV or HPV or HIV, stuff like that, and the treatable and preventable ones as well. There's a lot of resources out there.
1: Even just giving them that understanding of testing at all, right? You know, Maybe you're saying, I got tested for these things and I was negative for those. I got tested a month ago and they're real dodgy or or weird. And they're not like anti because that person just say no and leave. But if they're kind of like, ah, oh, just like, I don't know, I'm like nervous, proceed at your own risk, right? But give them those resources to just normalize it. Yeah. Right? But but be aware that there's some weirdness there.
2: Well, you could offer to go with them to get tested if they're like, I don't know, nervous about getting a blood test or something, which I always hate. Or if they're just nervous about the potential outcome and maybe they just need a support system, then you could offer to go with them when they get tested you should be willing to wait until they have educated themselves and gotten their results i think for your safety as well you know it for both of you just wait until they've gotten their results to really know the bigger picture the whole picture of what you're dealing with in terms of their health and be cautious from our experience even if someone's willing to learn there can be a lot of this residual baggage and fear which you know can make a person more likely to gloss over or leave out important details or to avoid this conversation with other partners, especially if those partners aren't as persistent or as knowledgeable as you are. They may just kind of gloss over it and you don't really know what's happening ever with anyone else. So just be cautious and, and understand that with all of these things, you are assessing your own risk as well.
0: And in your yeah. own energy levels right you know yes. I, I think that just like any time you're considering developing a relationship with somebody at any level of entwinement or entanglement is just figuring out what's what's actually worth my time what actually counts as still caring for myself you know for some people it may be worth it to to do more education for other people maybe not and so yeah just thinking about that
1: yeah <laughs> So then if you have multiple sexual partners, it can get a little more complicated to disclose your level of exposure to different STIs. And this is still important to do because it gives others the chance to give their informed consent, right? They need to be informed in order to fully consent. However, at the same time, STIs do carry a lot of social stigma still that we're all working to fight, but it is still there. And a partner of yours may not be comfortable with you sharing their status with people they don't know who might be your other partners. And this is a, a big topic. It's, there's not a one size fits all solution for this, but the best case scenario is that everyone is consenting to have enough information shared that others can make informed decisions. If some people in your network of people that you're having sex with are not comfortable with you sharing that information with others, you may end up in a situation where there just isn't an ethical way to proceed, unfortunately. And in that case, you may just need to limit the types of sexual activity that you do more generally. So depending on your situation, you might also find a way to disclose that you do occasionally sleep with someone with a certain STI diagnosis and explain what precautions you take when that situation comes up without being specific about who it is. is one possibility that some people do. If you have a very small network of people, that kind of doesn't work because it's sort of obvious who it might be. Um, But this is something that you do need to talk about and kind of negotiate that with everyone so that so that the option of just not saying something and not making someone informed that's not that's not an okay option right you you need to have some kind of conversation to work this out one way or another and it's important to start this process early because if you're trying to rush this conversation an hour before you're going to have sex with <laughs> someone and you haven't had time to check with your other partner about their comfort level with disclosing their status to someone else then it can be tempting to just omit it or to expose someone's private information without their permission. So really think ahead on this. Start this process of having these conversations early.
0: So let's talk about deciding how to proceed. You've had the conversation, you've exchanged information, and then comes the decision-making process. Sometimes that's going to be an easy decision, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're going to be in a situation where like, oh, I'm really comfortable and knowledgeable about my own STI status about the new information I now have about this potential sexual partner, I feel good about that. Or you may be in a situation where like, oh, wow, I've never had to navigate this particular type of situation. This comes up a lot in non-monogamy where someone may be like, okay, I'm, you know, I have experience navigating it when I have a direct sexual partner who has a particular STI status, but I've never experienced when someone with an STI is two or three degrees removed And how do I navigate that? How do I make decisions about how I'm supposed to proceed? So we can't say it enough. Any conversation about sex is going to be best if the option of not having sex, or at least not having sex yet, is actually a real option on the table. If you're in a situation where it feels like we both don't have an option but to have sex right now, and therefore any conversation that doesn't result in us being able to have sex is going to be a bad conversation. Someone's going to storm out of the room. Someone's going to whine. Someone's going to guilt trip the other person. Not a good situation. Just remember, it's entirely possible to have an amazing date, an amazing couple of dates, or an amazing entire relationship that doesn't ever involve particular types of sex or sex at all. Just keep that option open because it makes the other options even better if you do decide on them. And again we have to realize that there's not a direct right or wrong answer here sometimes. It all comes down to each individual's risk tolerance. Risk is something that we do every single day. Every time you get in a car, every time you take a drink, every time you take drugs, smoke, walk down the street at night, go to a public gathering, do basically anything, there's some kind of risk involved that includes sex. And in any situation, there are things that you can do to mitigate that risk. It all comes down to evaluating what is the level of risk, How comfortable am I with those risks? Are there other people involved who also have their own individual risk tolerances? And do I need to be considerate of that?
2: So between you and your partner, whoever has the lowest risk tolerance gets their way. No questions asked. Like, for example, if you want to use barriers and your partner doesn't, if you're going to have sex with them, then you need to be using barriers because you're the one with the lowest risk tolerance, essentially. So you're the one who needs to get your way in that sense. And, you know, you can change your mind. That person with the lowest risk tolerance can change their mind if and when they decide to, but don't try to change their mind for them. And ideally, somebody shouldn't be trying to change your mind as well. If one person is only comfortable with mutual masturbation, then your option is to do that or just decide that you don't want to be sexual with them at all. I actually was with a partner who, you know, said, I only want to use digits in order to have sex with you. And that was the digital only way
1: get down, digital. As it were.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not not the phone digits, but the finger digits. <laughs> and that was it. And uh they were with another partner and they decided like that was the only thing that they were going to do with additional people outside of their primary relationship. And so I had a higher risk tolerance than that for sure, but that's all we ever did and that was fine. It was still great. So it's something to think about. If their decision is based on a lack of information, then yes, you can share that with them, maybe give them resources to learn more, but ultimately they have to take the responsibility for it. You don't want to be the one who like convinced them to take a risk that they didn't want to and then something shitty happens. That's not... Ideal. You don't want to be on the end of feeling like, oh, crap, I made this person do that. That's terrible. And I think that's, that can be a tricky
0: line sure. to balance on, right? Because I think that you can always make a request of someone, right? Yeah. But it has to be in the spirit of it's okay for them to say no to that request right? So you can make a request of, hey, actually, I'm interested in this sexual activity. I know you have some concerns about the risk involved. Can we have a conversation about that and maybe see about negotiating that? And maybe they'll say, okay, yeah, sure. Or maybe they'll say, no, that's not okay. I don't really want to renegotiate that. And that has to be okay. And because I think if it's not okay, that's when it gets into the territory of I need to try to convince them, I need to change their mind, I need to coerce them, I need to put pressure on them, or I need to, you know manipulate them in some way and that's where it starts getting shady and really not good but making a yeah. request is not totally off the table either i think it's just like the spirit that it's done in and being sure to still respect people's risk tolerances and their boundaries
1: yeah where where even an answer of
3: well
1: i guess is like okay let's not then mm-hmm, but that's mm-hmm. that's not a yes right it's like okay yeah let's have that conversation and realize that the no could be just a like meh And then that could also be a no. Or you could have that conversation. They're like, sure, let's have that conversation. And then it still results in a no. That needs to be a a totally valid safe choice to make. Can't stress that enough. I think for everyone just remembering that
2: not having sex is a super valid option as well. And I think a lot of us forget that because it doesn't feel as, I guess, powerful or romantic or... Awesome or something, but there, as Jay said from the Magicians episode, there are so many different ways to have sex that don't necessarily involve penetration, even uh, uh, digitized or otherwise, toy wise or whatever, <laughs> penile mm-hmm. or not. So yeah, it, you can have sex a lot of different ways, and and that's that's also very valid.
1: And I've had some incredibly rewarding romantic relationships that didn't involve any kind of sex at all. Yeah, right. Like nothing, nothing beyond kissing. Right, So there's just a lot of options out there. And it's so cool that we have all these options. And I think we really miss out when we forget that fact. So all right, we're coming to the end of this. And basically, this is where, based on all the information from last week's episode, from this week's episode, you realize that there's a lot of different options for how you can proceed. And so in trying to just look at, how these conversations go, how are people navigating this, to sort of give you some examples to think about that are not just ours, we asked our listeners in our Patreon group how they handle their safer sex practices with their partners to just see the range of how people answer that question. So basically, we took those and looked at kind of what are some of the trends we noticed? What are some of the conversations that came up out of that? So we can share some of those with you here, and then we're going to talk about more of those in our bonus episode. So to start off, a pretty common agreement that a lot of people have in non monogamous relationships is not using barriers with their nesting partner, you know, with the partner that
0: primary partner
1: they live with or a primary partner, um, but using condoms with everyone else. That's a fairly common agreement. However, There are some examples that are the other way around, where with their nesting partner, they always use condoms because they know that either they or their partner doesn't always do that with everyone else. So that's that's also a valid option that did come up in those conversations. Some people also brought up how they've done that before, which generally is referred to as fluid bonding. I'm not a big fan of that term, actually, because it implies like the bonding part implies that it's somehow closer or more intimate or more romantic. And You're that's really something that's, fluids. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's just not true.
0: Fluids just be fluids. Yeah. Fluids that's be it. fluids,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where you well. could, maybe you could say like, we've decided to be cross-contaminated. Uh, might be a different term. <laughs> I, that's not sexier. Oh no, man! It's accurate, I would love I guess. it though.
0: I would love it just to counterbalance uh, all the right. imagery that fluid bonding brings up to call it cross-contamination. <laughs> I mean, okay, that's maybe bringing in some shame and that sense yeah, of dirtiness. Like, but we don't, want that but, don't true, want that. but that's but, but that's kind of well. But but that highlights the fact that the way We've, that fluid bonding is putting a weird positive bias on right, not using right, barriers that you could also put a weird negative bias on it as well
1: hmm But so what came up in this conversation that, that made a lot of sense, and I've definitely seen this happen, is uh, someone brought up how they had done fluid bonding in the past and said, I'm not ever going to do that again because the other person got weird and controlling and possessive and mm-hmm. things like that. And I think a lot of that comes with that association of this is somehow more intimate and now... I need to have more control over your behavior with other people because I'm deciding to have this increased level of risk in terms of my exposure with you. So it's just, it, it, it can be challenging as well. But something else to keep in mind is that uh, quite a few people actually brought up switching between using barriers or not with specific partners. For example, it could be, well, right now we're both using barriers with everyone else, so we're not with each other. But sometimes w- when a relationship with someone else gets more serious, we'll stop using barriers with them and start using them with each other. Or maybe during COVID, we basically weren't seeing anyone else, so we stopped using them. But once we start dating again, we'll start using them. It can also fluctuate. Again, to get away from that relationship escalator idea that once we stop using them, if we ever start again, it means like we're our relationship isn't as good. Or, or some something that's just has nothing to do with it at all, actually.
0: Yeah. On the show, I mean, I think, well, I don't know if this is all of our party line, but I know my party line tends to be, I really encourage people to take a step back from their relationships and think about what are the ways that I would want to protect myself if I wasn't connected to anybody, if I didn't have an established nesting partner or a live-in partner or a primary partner or whatever if I didn't have this 20-year marriage, whatever it is, what would I choose to do to protect myself and use that as your guiding light for moving forward? Even if that means, oh, maybe I need to start using barriers with someone that I haven't been using barriers with for several years. That can be hard. That can be tricky. That can bring up a lot of emotions. But for, I know for me in my life, I'm like, that. I feel like that just makes things a lot simpler to know that I have, I know for myself what protects me and that's the policy I'm going to use with everyone in my life. That's not always a popular opinion. <laughs> so other things that people shared include you know sharing STI results directly and requesting them from partners, clarifying that that kind of important information is going to be shared with others in the polycule and getting people's consent on that. People talked about the fact that their own personal frequency of testing may change based on their behavior and the number of people in their sexual network. Uh, some people even share even more health information like vaccination status mental health diagnosis, medications, including STIs and sexual health as well, that they kind of group all that information together. And some people share that they just have some basic policies in place, like, you know, always using condoms, external or internal for penetration, but don't have specific requirements for a sexual health talk or for testing or don't and don't expect their partners to either. And generally, the people who shared the people who were taking more risks also talked about getting tested more often, such as every three or four months or so.
1: Yeah. So in our bonus, we're going to go into some more of the findings that we found from this. I found it really interesting for me just, as a, just to get the sense of what people are doing to start thinking about it and having that conversation. So if you're a patron, please join us for that bonus episode after that. We would also love to hear from all of you on our Instagram stories. We're posting our question of the week, which is, when do you think is the best time to bring up the sex talk before sleeping with someone? Really interested to hear everyone's answers. Also, if you want to talk about this episode more, the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or in our Discord chat in the episode discussion channel. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash Multiamory. In addition, you can share publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Emily Matlack, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our research for this episode was done by M. Mays. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.
3: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.